With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone. I'm Hilary Kerr, the co-founder and chief content officer of Who, What, Where, and this is Second Life a podcast spotlighting women who have truly inspiring careers. We're talking about their work journeys, what they've learned from the process of setting aside their doubts or fears, and what happens when they embark on their second life. Today, I'm excited to be back with the first of many interviews we've recorded remotely over the past few months. We're fortunate to be able to work this way, but remote recording also comes with interruptions, distractions, and technical difficulties. And to top it off, Mercury has been in retrograde. That said, there may be some slight differences and additions to the audio, including, but not limited to, dogs, children, thunder, sirens, fireworks, and more. Like husbands! We appreciate you bearing with us. Today on the podcast, I'm delighted to be sitting down with Karen Young, the founder and CEO of the grooming and personal care brand, We The People, and that's We O-U-I. Like many people with sensitive skin, Karen was frustrated by razor burn, and luckily for us, she decided to take matters into her own hands and come up with a solution. With a $1,500 investment, she launched We The People and turned shaving into a self-care ritual that has the world talking. The brand has been celebrated by everyone from Vogue to Beyonce, yes, Beyonce, and has over 400 five-star reviews on the stainless steel single blade safety razor, which has already sold out six times and counting. The brand has also expanded into body care with products like the Deep V Bikini Mask and a Featherweight Body Gloss, which are gaining cult status just as fast. But before Karen was turning the shaving industry on its head, she actually worked in packaging operations at Estee Lauder. And before that, she founded a home and lifestyle goods brand back in 2008. I'd also like to tell you about her days working as an account executive for major fashion brands like Dolce & Gabbana, but I'll let Karen tell you about her winding journey herself. Now, on Second Life, it's Karen Young. Karen, let's take it way back to the beginning. What did you study in school and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Yeah, so I was a psychology major. I actually have a Bachelor of Science from Fordham University. And I fully thought I was going to grow up and, like, you know, tell all adults how to be better. (laughs) (laughs) Casual ambition. Just, yeah, just casual. Yeah, I was just going to be like, and this is how you do it. This is how you solve all the things and, um, you know, live your absolute best life. I think I was very inspired by Oprah at the time. That sounds like a real Oprah sort of uh, statement to make. And and certainly um, it's it's befitting a 20-something-year-old. 
Absolutely. But I also like that, that you like wanted to be inside people's heads and understand why they made the choices that they made and what they would do with it. But did you graduate and start practicing or what was your path? I actually decided to do something else. So psychology was was a, a sort of two parts, two parts that sort of drove me towards it. One was I come from a Caribbean family and it's like you are successful either one of two ways. You're either a doctor or a lawyer. And (laughs) (laughs) once I sort of like, you know, took a little bit of a dive into being a lawyer, I was just like, oh no, I think this is like not for me. And I thought, okay, well, I'm not going anywhere near blood. Like I know that for sure. Um, So I, I thought it would be interesting to pursue psychology, but I didn't really have a lot of guidance. And one of the things that I, you know, really wasn't prepared for was how long I would have to be in school and how expensive that would be. And I've pretty much actually been on my own um, and self-sufficient since I was about 16 years old. And yeah, it just psychology wasn't lining up for a very practical life that I needed to to live at the time. And so I I decided to go another way. So tell me about that way. What was your first (laughs) job out of school and how did you get it? Yeah. While I was in school, I remember uh, walking the hallways and, you know, I was like, just could not figure out what my next moves were going to be. And I, I saw an, uh, like a posting for an internship in, in fashion. And I said, you know, oh my gosh, I'm kind of really, really into fashion. And I, I had like this creative bent that I really wanted to exercise. And so I took a chance and I went, I got the internship. And when I was um, graduating, they actually offered me a job, but that job was in PR. And I was, I am like an introvert through and through. And I was just like, <laughs> I don't, I don't think this is for me. <laughs> like, I don't know if I have the stomach to like show up in the way that like a PR job in like Italian fashion demands. And the, the internship was at Narciso Rodriguez. And so it was this incredible townhouse right off of Fifth Avenue, multiple brands throughout the townhouse. Just, I was in absolute heaven. And I said, you know, I don't think PR is for me, but if there's anything else you can think of, I would absolutely love to and go into, into fashion. I mean, it's like my dream at this point. And there was something down the street at Dolce & Gabbana as an account executive. And so that ended up being my first job. Okay, so what exactly are your responsibilities as an account executive? And what was it like working for Dolce & Gabbana? Yeah, so as an account executive, my job was to grow the brand through retail partnerships. So I worked with the majors like um, Barney's at the time, of course, uh, Saks Fifth Avenue, Nordstrom, Neiman's, and just worked to distribute the brand throughout those doors. It was one incredible experience. It was the height of the Italian name sort of really ruling the the runway. And they had such an incredible sense of design and, and, and flash and passion and also incredible attention to detail and tailoring. It was so interesting because I'm like, you know, here from like my, my Caribbean background. And so I, I come from very humble beginnings and... I didn't grow up living this like a very fashion forward life, um, but I actually had a love of design 
and clothing and, and detail from my mother. I remember she had like a closet full of Bill Blass. Wow. <laughs> and, and this woman looked impeccable in everything. Like my mom's idea of fully like super stylish outfit is one that I would still put on today. She would get up and go to her job and she would have on a pair of like slim Levi's just lightly cuffed at the ankle, a pair of black penny loafers, no socks or anything, and a white button down shirt with a navy blazer and an ascot tied at her neck. And sometimes she would throw on a beret. So I guess, I, I guess she, I, I just so she, I know. <laughs> so I guess I ended up, you know, sort of like there was something there that was like, I have to figure out about construction. I have to figure, I have to understand like why, why you can put on something and it, it, it is almost transforming, you know, to not only like how people see you, but sometimes even how you carry yourself. And mm-hmm. I wanted to understand the, the working elements of building. Um, at the time, I, I still sort of fantasized, like, well, what if I design too, you know? And so I said, well, it's one thing to design. Like, I feel like if you have creativity inherently, you can sort of learn on top of that. But what I didn't understand was like, okay, well, how do you keep the lights on when you do? And that basically was my job. Like I was part of the team that kept the lights on for these brands by selling to these uh, retail partners so that they could continue to do what they love and produce season after season. So what were the skills that you were honing in that job? Um, What do you think you really need to know and excel at to be a good account executive? Yeah. So for me, it was storytelling and bringing someone into a particular world here, you know, and then also understanding. So I applied the psychology element, I believe, to understanding what the consumer needed on the other end. And then I would work with the retailer that I was working with in particular to try and pull the, the right pieces together that told that story to the, the customer, you know? So what the buyer at Saks Fifth Avenue, like literally on Fifth Avenue needed was different than what one of our biggest accounts in Texas, you know, who was selling to like a, a very wealthy stay-at-home mom might need. And so, you know, we would get these really just big, broad, beautiful collections and It was just so interesting, like a certain piece of a few certain pieces would start to come out and be like the star of the show. And every time a collection came in, we, of course, always got the designer's inspiration. So there was like this really beautiful um, black wool coat, you know, with the most impeccable like detailing and cinched waist and A-line structure. And then the wind could catch the coat and fully inside was like a you know 100% silk lining that was like covered in in graffiti print like that those were just the type of stories that we got to tell about this inspiration behind it and and figure out how to then sell that to to people in in all these different places really that's such an interesting way of sort of a foundation for any business is like really understanding how a consumer is different depending on the store, depending on the location. What a wonderful training ground. And also to have that psychology background too of like putting together what that type of person would be like or what her day would be like or what would motivate her to buy something that just seems like a a wonderful puzzle to figure out. 
It really was. It really was. I, I got to understand the psyche of people, even if I wasn't necessarily touching them directly. And it gave me a thrill because it all came full circle. If one of my retailers placed a reorder, you know, if they called me and said, Karen, we got the skirt in on Tuesday and it's already sold out on Friday, like all of that was so thrilling because it was the work that we did together. And so essentially what I learned was uh, storytelling, building relationships, um, and also sales. Interesting. Okay, so you moved over to Ben Sherman after you spent some time at Dolce. What was appealing to you about making that move? And what were you learning? And what was your experience like? Yeah, so Ben Sherman was was really fascinating. The, the consumer taste had started to change a bit over time. And there was suddenly like a big shift from being more dressy, sort of like more about details and fabrics and patterns and layers and textures. And then (laughs) America was just like, I'm so over it. I just want t-shirts and jeans. (laughs) And that was like really big. And I watched all of these like really large denim labels, some that are still here today, like their businesses really started to blossom around those time and, and launch around that time. And when I moved over to Ben Sherman, they actually housed uh, the brand that I that I actually did work for, which was called Ebisu. And Ebisu is a, a Japanese denim company. And their whole thing was, okay, you know, you're going to do jeans. That's great. But we're going to take it to the next level. We're basically going to use Japanese salvage, which is like the most beautifully made, like stiff, denim ever, you know, really gorgeous indigo dye and made in a very specific way on a loom. And again, with the storytelling, you know, each pair had a particular history behind it. And so we would get these jeans in that were like $700 retail, maybe over the weekend or something, Jay-Z or someone would mention it and boom, turn around, go in on Monday. And the store is like, I sold out of every single one of these like $700 jeans that, that um, we had in. And that's when I was just like, yeah, okay. So press plus storytelling plus, okay, got it. Got it. I'm starting to see how this all comes together. And then you worked for a brand called Oxygen, also as an account executive. What made you decide to make that move? And how was that experience different from your previous ones? So Oxygen was, I, I would say it was my, well, one of my first sort of more startup experiences in fashion. What was appealing about them was it was a brand that was one of the very first actually to begin exploring something that's really important now. And it's just been really fascinating to think back, like how long it actually took for this to come to fruition, to be at the front of our conversation, but they use bamboo to make their clothing. And interesting. Yeah. And so when I, when the opportunity came through, it was like a, a, a number of things. One, I could own a larger territory as an account executive. So that was really interesting. The second was there was this green element to it. And I knew nothing about eco-friendliness necessarily at the time. And so I was just like, wow, this is really unique and a very unique selling point. And the fact that it was better on the environment and, um, 
all of that. And it was a little bit more of that startup perspective. So it was just a very small team. And as a result, now I was able to get access to the design team, for example, and like directly give them feedback when things sold well, when they didn't, you know, things that that I thought we needed to change or think about. So yeah, that was that was really fun because I had never been able to to have that level of of perspective, you know, and and that level of of input in the development of any of the brands. Like Dolce & Gabbana was amazing, but there was no way that they were going to be like, so, <laughs> what, so Karen, do what do you think? <laughs> what should we do for, you know, next season, Karen? Like that wasn't happening. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So at this point in your career, you've had experience with major high-end fashion houses as well as a startup brand. And then in 2008, you used that knowledge to found your first company, Hammocks and High Tea. So tell me about that experience, the concept, how you got it off the ground, what the idea was. Tell me everything. Yeah. So Hammocks and High Tea was inspired by my upbringing in Guyana, South America. And, you know, the, the how that sort of clashed together with the experience that I had working with these really beautiful brands that were so well tailored and really, really well done and had an incredible attention to design. I you know, was like fresh out of school and I was was still like trying to pull my own apartment together on a budget. And everywhere I turned, it was like, do you want a gray pillow or do you want a gray pillow? Do you want a, like, <laughs> would you like a beige pillow or like a beige pillow? It was just like, I was just like, this is so absolutely boring. It doesn't feel like anything that I had encountered in fashion at the time. And so you know, I just kind of thought to myself, well, what if I were to bring that element of really beautiful attention to detail and design and pattern and texture and pull that together into a home goods line? And I started very, very, very small. Like, I think I was like doing tea towels or, or something like that. I mean, I've always been largely, you know, self-funded with any of my business endeavors and this was the first one where I just kind of started with like the bare minimum and said, you know, I think I can make something that's really cool, accessibly priced that people can add to their homes and, and bring this like really nice element of design. And I applied all of my background to that from actually building these relationships with retailers. And over time, I ended up building up that brand to over 100 doors of distribution as well as international. Wow. Yeah, it was it was so tiring and so fun. <laughs> was it just you at that point? Yeah. Yeah. And I did. Um, eventually, I worked my way up to building out a supply chain in New York as well. So I found one of the few remaining factories that was in New York and over on 38th Street. And oh, my gosh, boy, did I have fun. I finally got my hands like really into everything, you know, and finally was able to exercise that thing within me that was like, I understand, you know, the, like what makes the engine go, but I also mm -hmm. just desperately want to be so 
creative. I remember doing these beautiful linen pillows and then I would get these invisible zippers in like hot pink and like teal blue and so on. And I was just, and so when you like went to zip or unzip your, your pillow, there was always like a, an element of surprise, even though the, the fabric in and of itself was, was wonderfully understated and a little bit more elevated. Oh, that's so cool. So since this was your first foray into the entrepreneurial world, what was your biggest learning experience from that time? And how did it shape your outlook moving forward? Did it increase your tolerance for risk, your confidence in yourself? Tell me, tell me how it affected you. Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest thing was I just really understood how having access to capital could either constrain you or give you, you know, a little bit more room to, to roam. So as I grew, um, and as the, the company grew, that was really one of the absolute most difficult things because I was, you know, expanding our stores and all of that. But then I started working with interior designers, for example, and then I started working with hotels and like, you know, these orders would, would come through and there was such an incredible opportunity for us to grow. But I don't think that I really like knew how to pace the company's growth with what was truly in the bank account, which was not that, right. that much. <laughs> and I, I had no idea that there was even anything remotely available for help with that other than a bank loan. And so I believe I ended up getting an SBA loan and that that helped to like you know kind of keep us moving forward but i was thinking bigger uh much bigger than the than the access to capital that i had and only now in in where i am now in my career have i finally like learned to marry those things i didn't have that understanding when i was younger i was like no, 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 this could go into, you know, greatest hotels around the world. And I can work with all these interior designers and, you know, we can do international distribution. I've always had these big grand goals. And then I was just like, aha, uh -huh. I think I understand why the indie designers that I was working with <laughs> back in the day had such a, a hard time. Right. Yeah. It's just you, you have to ma match your, your access to capital with those goals. And, and that was, was frustrating. Because I would imagine like someone would place a big order, but then that would require you to have a certain amount of money to produce it. And by the time you produce it, sell it and get paid, months and months and months can go by, right? Yep. You've got it exactly right. So that was my first um, true understanding of, of, of more of a full perspective of what it takes to build and grow and scale. So speaking of which, you ended up closing that business down mm -hmm. and worked at Estee Lauder as the manager of packing ops, mm -hmm. which I don't have any idea what that means. So I'm hoping that you can explain it to me. And what was your decision? What was the impetus for that decision? Yeah. So I was familiar with the director of um, pack ops at, at the time at Estee Lauder. And, you know, she said to me one day, and, and I don't think she even knew that I, that I was planning on closing my, my other business. And you know, she said, if you ever wanted to work at Estee Lauder, I would absolutely love to have someone with your entrepreneurial perspective and your creativity at the brand and in particular helping me to, you know, manage this division. And I was just like, you had me at mascara. Like I, 
I don't want to. <laughs> I was like, do y'all discount? Because I'm there. And I ended up getting the position there. And it was a new one and a challenging one. First of all, I as well had no idea what pack ops, you know, also known as packing engineering was. But I am the type of person, if you say, <laughs> Karen, tomorrow we're going to the moon. I don't know what's there, but I think it's going to be cool. I'm going to be like, what time? And let me start packing my bags. So <laughs> when I got that opportunity, it was just like, yes, I will figure it out. And I remember... I had taught myself um, Photoshop in order to design, but I knew nothing about um, Illustrator. And they use Illustrator for pretty much everything. And I sat there and, you know, like literally three people um, who would be my, the directors that I was working with were like, so do you know this program and this program and this program? And I was just like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm willing to learn. (laughs) So what were your responsibilities? What were you doing in that job? Yeah. So pack ops, it's the last stage of the actual packaging that the consumer would experience, whether from behind a beauty counter or, you know, through a direct to consumer experience, you know, every box, every pamphlet, every, you know, booklet, every carton, every bottle, every cap, all of that went through um, this team of very highly skilled people who understood how to take everything from marketing, everything from legal, and put it into um, a consumer unboxing experience. And it truly opened my eyes to like how, just how much would go into what looked to be a simple box that you would just sort of, you know, take off and, you know, rip the, the thing open. And I was just so hungry to learn more. I mean, if you knew what went into those pamphlets that where you like open it up and there's 500 <laughs> languages and yeah. you can't even read any of them. Like those things take months and months and months to develop. It was just absolutely insane to, to see it. But my job was to manage the, the artists. So anywhere from like 20 to at times, I think maybe gosh, closer to 40. And my, my job was to help them, um, do it seamlessly, make sure that they had everything that they needed to produce the best. So going from being a business owner to part of a global team at a massive beauty brand must have been a very big culture shift for you. Was it a difficult transition or was it a wonderful one? Did you like being a part of this huge team? Yeah, it it wasn't terribly difficult just because I had worked I had spent more time in corporate than I had working for myself and Right. So that wasn't wasn't too difficult. I think it was probably the strangest thing was understanding a new language. Like they would throw around acronyms. They just went flying over my head like I was in <laughs> a cartoon or something. And I was just like, oh my, what is, oh my God, okay, no. And I, was, I just spent like the first few months just kind of being like really quiet until I until I got it down. Um, yeah. And then I, 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 you know, I started throwing it around myself because I was so proud that I actually knew what these things meant about a, a couple <laughs> months in. Well, I could ask you a million questions about it, but I obviously want to talk to you about your next move, which was another idea for a business of your own. 
What sparked the idea for We the People? Yeah. Was there a pivotal moment when you're like, hey, I have this great idea for my next company. And can you explain a little bit about it for our audience if for some reason they don't know? So We the People is a modern grooming and body care brand for for women. And uh, the grooming aspect of it is a single blade stainless steel razor, which was actually the razor of choice um, for women in the 1950s before plastic manufacturing became as big as it was. And we moved on to these like really horrific plastic pink uh, glitter and all sorts of things that they sort of threw at us. And so I, I believe two things will definitely led me. One is that uh, I think I'm forever an entrepreneur. I'm always looking for opportunities. I'm always looking to challenge myself. I'm always looking to grow. Being an entrepreneur is like getting an MBA like 10 times over. It's an experience that I, I've never been able <laughs> to find in the corporate world, that just the level of growth that I have access to every single day. And that also includes like a lot of tears too, but you know, mostly growth. <laughs> true, true, true. Yeah, yeah. And I also personally uh, have just always experienced the worst ingrown hairs and razor burn as a result of shaving. And I kept saying, oh, you know, it's my skin, it's my skin. And it turned out that it was a bit of a, a combination. You know, my skin does err on the side of sensitivity. And as a person with very curly hair, it is more likely that I might end up getting um, razor burn, in particular ingrown hairs as, as the hair started to grow back. The other thing too was the experience of, of shaving was just absolutely awful. And so I remember going out with um, my girlfriends and this was like, like one of those beautiful days in like May-ish where the sun was just like out and it was like 60 something degrees. And, and it just kind of felt like, okay, I think spring is officially here. And we're like, all right, let's go do brunch and we'll get Manny Petties. And so I was just like, got it. Give me like half an hour because I got to take care of the situation before I go put anyone through that, like having to touch my leg. I uh, ran into the bathroom and I grabbed, you know, a razor that I had just bought like the day before. And I grabbed the like usual shaving foam or whatever, this like strawberry scented thing. And I remember like very specifically thinking, oh, please don't let this be another incident. This is like the fifth razor that I'm trying. I just want to find something else that doesn't leave me covered in razor burn or ingrowns. It's such an awful experience. And I get to the salon, roll up my pant leg, and my friend looks over and she goes, what is going on with your leg? And I was just like, oh, that's just razor burn. That's my normal. And she's like, yeah, that's actually pretty bad, though. <laughs> and we just basically started talking about how bad the experience of shaving was um, for us. And I kind of said to myself, you know, like, I wonder if I can just ask a few more people about this because now I'm just a little bit curious because I can't be the only one. And I have never in my life met someone who goes, I love shaving. Like I absolutely just love to shave. No, no. <laughs> and just as you like sort of listen to them talk about the experience of it, it usually involves like something, you know, a plastic razor that's kind of like thrown in the corner of the shower 
And, you know, maybe it's got mold, maybe it doesn't, maybe it's rusted, maybe it's not. And here I am, of course, you know, I, I what is it? Essay Lauder, I think it's like the third largest beauty company in the world. Here I am with like mega conglomerate beauty company with like access to everything. And I thought that there was an opportunity to align shaving and skincare. And, and that's when I started playing around with that idea. Got it. Okay. So I read that you started your company with only $1,500. First of all, how is that possible? <laughs> and secondly, what did you spend that money on? So I started off, um, we, we were called We Shave um, at the, the very beginning. And I said, you know, I'm just going to do razors and we're just going to like kind of chat about that. And, you know, I'll see what women are really interested in, and we'll build from there. So I did my research and I went online and I ordered samples and I started calling razor companies around the world. I called England, I called Japan, I called Germany, and I tested like all of these razors. So you're calling razor mm-hmm. manufacturers mm-hmm. around the world? Yeah. That you just found on the internet? Yeah, That's yeah. crazy. And, and they're not even easy to find there because, you know, most of the business I think occurs on the, the, the back end, more like distribution. Right. And here's me on the line going, hi, uh, my name is Karen and I, <laughs> I, I see that you make a safety razor and I want to make one for women. And they were like, yeah, no, no interest in doing that. And now that I look back on how difficult it is to make a razor, I, I could actually understand why they thought I was absolutely out of my mind calling them <laughs> saying that. And um, I said, okay, I'm just going to work on proving the idea out. And so after some doing a, a bit of research and, I, and finding different like aggressiveness levels and different blade exposures and different angles and, and all of that, I decided on Germany and I ordered a, a bunch of razors and said, you know, I'll just like put these up on a site and I'll just, you know, I had like a little Squarespace site and I was just like, I'm just going to see if anyone has any interest in like talking about them and if I can build a little bit of a conversation and see if there's a potential buyer there outside of my friends, right? My, oh my gosh, my poor brother ordered one like every year for anyone that he could think of. He was just amazing. I was like looking at my customer data a couple of years in and it was like, this is your star <laughs> customer. And I was like, Oh, who's that? And it was my brother. Uh. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. So the offering in the very beginning was a single style of single blade. Yes, a razor. single style. I offered just in two handle lengths and a small bottle of oil, a small two ounce bottle of oil that was, you know, really nice and beautifully scented. And um, I was making the oil myself, just sort of like hand packaging, like all of this stuff. And I was just like, just keep it simple, Karen. Keep it simple. Do not get extra. And um, I just started having conversations with folks. And um, what happened was I, I set up our Instagram and I just kind of started reaching out and I said, you know, who, who would be really interested in this? I think it would probably would be like the green beauty community because there's an eco-friendly angle as well. And it's an oil and it's just a little bit different. And we were sort of aligning with like beauty tools as that sort of was becoming a thing, you know? And, and I said, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, if you can like use a derma roller, like you you probably might be interested in using a different type of razor, especially if you, you know, have ingrown hairs or you, you know, experience like very sensitive skin and you get razor burn. And that community 
just picked us up and ran with it. And suddenly I found myself in business and subsequently sold out. So that $1,500 to answer your question went towards my first bit of inventory, buying like, you know, a, a 24 bottles and, and, and some oil and, you know, how do I want to scent this? You know, and I, I yeah, obviously at Estee Lauder, I, I work at Tom Ford and I absolutely loved his Neroli Portofino. And I was just like, oh, well, why am I shaving with strawberry foam when I could shave with Neroli? <laughs> That is a wonderful <laughs> question. Like, well, why would I ever? Oh my gosh, no. And so I just, I just started pulling these little pieces together and, and letting it take shape. And that $1,500 went towards those supplies and a Squarespace website and just some photography, which at the time I, I had a friend, you know, who I knew from many years ago, who was a, a photographer and I remember like going to Prospect Park and like literally just using what was there, like what was in the park, like resting a razor near a tree or whatever, and just doing really nice photography. And that was it. And then I woke up one day and I was just like, hey, there's an order and it's not for my brother. This is great. That's amazing. So there's a big leap going from having a website and having a handful of people who are interested in the product to making that like a full-blown yeah. company. What was the next big moment for you where you thought like, okay, this is really yeah. a thing? At this point, I knew what it looked like when you were when you would try to scale and you would hit a ceiling, right? I had that experience from running my first company and getting to that point where it was just like, okay, crap, I don't have enough capital to fund this. And so what I actually made sure to do this time was just grow super slowly over time and with attention to the the consumer, like very, very close attention, almost one-on-one -on -one attention to the consumer. The reason I chose to do that is because this is beauty. This is your skin. This is literally something that you are using with the desire for it to produce a particular result um, and an experience that I wanted to deliver on. And I wanted to make sure that we could do that before we sort of, you know, blew the wheels off the thing and, and ended up scaling. And so I just took it really slow over time, no outside investors or anyone to, to worry about. Um, and then one day I actually was, was coming back from a trip and we were going into the holiday season and I looked at my order lineup and I remember like sitting down with my husband and I said, you know, this is like, I don't know when we got here, but like, we're, we're kind of at a point where like, if I budgeted out like the next six months or so, I think I could like pay, I can manage my regular overhead and it would still just be me, but I could do that. And I could just kind of continue growing this thing. And he was like, yeah, you know, I, if, if that's what you think you can go for it. And, and obviously, you know, I'll be here if like you need me to cover you or anything like that. And by the time we got through that holiday, we had doubled what I had expected to do. And I was just like, okay, no, I definitely like, I have to do this wow. full time now. 
Okay. So you also expanded the types of products that you were carrying or creating. In addition to just the razors, you were working on things like a bikini mask and a body gloss. And I would imagine that this is an entirely different supply chain than that of your razors. And we're talking about labs and formulations. Was R&D any easier this time around? And I'm curious about which product has been the most difficult to get right. R&D, once you make a razor from scratch, uh, R&D <laughs> on anything else, <laughs> like I was so excited to do our, our body gloss because I was just like, it's an oil. It either works <laughs> or it doesn't and it's an oil. Yeah. So in late 2017, I had by that point um, found an incredible manufacturer in Germany and I went from a paper sketch that I sort of drew here and then worked on with an engineer and 3D modeling and, and all of that. And I had sort of found a factory and I had them on file for like a year and I was, I was sweating bullets. Like I was just like, I am not, I cannot go to like, they're going to think I'm crazy. And this is, and they were just like, Oh no, we can do that. No, that's, that's awesome. Let's do it. And I was like, I could not believe my luck. And then they were like, on top of that, we've got engineers on our team as well. So we are going to make sure that this comes out to be the like the best and most beautiful product that that suits your needs and your customers' needs. And I had applied, we work at the the time in 2017, they were doing their first and I think it might have been their last creator awards, which was basically like you can apply for funding in the form of a grant. And they were doing it in New York. And literally the day before, somehow I got wind of it, the day before the deadline. And I did like this super rushed, you know, application process and it involved the video. And I said, I'm going to change the world and I'm going to change the way we speak to women and the way that we sell products to women. And it's going to start with this incredible razor and blah, blah, blah. And I, within 24 hours, they were like, Hey, uh, you're a finalist. And I was like, what has happened? This is insane. And I have to tell you all of the, the luck that I have had, it has happened because I've had women on the other side, because I've come across women on the other side, whether it's like, you know, the person who manages the, the back end billing department or whatever at the razor company. And I couldn't get anyone else. Like she picked up the phone that day and was like, yeah, you know what? There should be a better razor for women. Let me help you out, you know? And And in the case of WeWork, it was a team of women on the other end who were judging these applications and they were like, yeah, no, this makes sense. I, I think you deserve to be a finalist. And I went through the process, you know, a, a couple of weeks of like crazy preparation. And I was like, again, sweating bullets because the, the razor sample that I needed had not arrived yet from Germany. And so it came the day before I had to go and present on stage (laughs) to the judges. And I ended up winning 180K, which was the the largest award in the the category at, at the time. And that sent me on my way really to, to, to being able to hit that next level of scaling this and, and saying, okay, now I can go into production 
with this razor. Now I'm outsourcing the oil. And then I was able to, you know, put packages together and started selling those. And now, you know, my average order value went up. And so the business became profitable and it really took an opening for me to, to be able to hit that stride. And, and I think it's important to say that because the 1500 was the start, but I definitely needed a lot of folks on, on my side and I needed that capital infusion to keep going. And so when you ask if the other products that we have built and the ones that we are building are more or less difficult, everything is a cakewalk after a razor. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about your drop model, which I find so interesting because you release limited numbers of each product, which is obviously a well-known model in sneaker and streetwear, but not so much when it comes to personal care or razors. So can you explain your decision behind releasing product drops? Besides being so fun. <laughs> there is a huge element of surprise and, and delight to that. But I also grew up in the 90s. And he's like watching Jordan sneakers, for example, hit, you know, the, yes. like, the school wave like of, of my like Flatbush Caribbean and American school. And just seeing how people get so excited about these surprise elements of life. That's something that I definitely wanted to, to deeply infuse into We The People because it's like, it's a cultural reawakening, you know, it's, it's that I, that I've never really seen in beauty, the way that I've seen it happen in streetwear, for example. And I really wanted to, to do something like that also because it's, takes me out like our drops might not even be beauty theme like they they're probably going to be completely different things and that allows me to pull from my design background and that production experience in order to do things that just feel really special and and really unique and at the end of the day it's just a delightful customer experience it is. So speaking of delightful customer experiences, let's talk about your branding and your tone, which is so on point because it's approachable and refreshingly relatable, but also very chic. And that is a incredibly difficult combination to nail. So how did you get that? How did you sort everything out? Did it take time to find your brand voice or were you clear on that from the jump? Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember feeling like I don't want anyone to speak to me as if I were not intelligent. And that's how I felt. Like, <laughs> did I say that classily <laughs> enough? Such a simple request. <laughs> yes, very. And I remember uh, looking through uh, these ads and I, in, in particular, I was looking for shaving ads. Like when we, you know, just had the razor. And then I kind of started like, as I noticed, as I was Googling images and so on of like ads from the fifties and, and sixties and so on, like other, other ads were coming up to anything from like hosiery to, you know, lipstick and, and all of those things. And they really all said the same thing, which was, if you don't use this product, you are not lovable. You're not the type of woman who is going to attract and you're not worthy of it is, is really what I started reading in between the lines of these ads. And I just got so frustrated 
And I noticed that decade after decade, the undertone still stayed the same. And words like, you know, perfecting and, and flawless and anti-aging and all of that, uh, you know, a shaving ad, it would be like, you know, the woman is like riding down a beach on a horse with like white silk or something trailing behind her. And there's like an Adonis <laughs> in the foreground. And you're just like, no, that's, first of all, no, that's not the experience I'm having with this razor. But also like, can I just want to remove my hair if, if that's my choice without it having to be tied to a very specific experience and, and, and result, like without, without you having to say, listen, chick, if you're hairy, nobody wants you. You know what I mean? Like, that's really <laughs> it. So much judgment. And I was just like, I don't need that. And I happen to think that women are smart and capable and incredible. And I said, if I've convinced by now a number of women who have never even seen this type of razor to use it and experience it and love it. I think it's time for us to have a deeper and better conversation. And I think it's time for someone to approach women from a more thoughtful perspective. So yeah, it, it really came from how would I want to be spoken to, but also how would I speak to, to my girlfriends, you know? I love that. And it definitely comes through. So I want to talk about the current climate because, as I'm sure you are aware, we are in a pandemic and it is affecting everyone's business in different and interesting ways. I'm curious how you're adapting in this very crazy time. Definitely a, a wild, a, a very, very wild time to experience both as, a, as an entrepreneur um, as well as an individual just kind of going through this with everyone. I think what has been really fascinating and, um, and interesting for us is because we are all experiencing this together as a race of people, as, as a, it's a global pandemic. We have been able to use the opportunity to build a more dynamic connection with our audience. And so, for example, in our email flows to our, our customers, we're not like, hey, buy this product. We're like, hey, we made you a calming playlist, for example. We, we're just thinking like, and, and obviously from talking to them and from being on Instagram as well and from experiencing it ourselves, like, how are we feeling through this? And if we're going to show up for you, what does that look like? And it, it usually means showing up for them in a more thoughtful way that reflects the reality of what's going on and not the reality that we would like to create from a business perspective. That said, on the business end, we've actually been been doing really very well and experiencing quite a bit of, of tailwind uh, as a result, just because more people are at home and shopping and the access to, you know, going out to maybe do anything else, wax or, or laser or anything has caused folks to lean more into self-care at home with a razor. And so we've been able to, to really lean into that conversation. And as a result, the business has been growing through all of this. I'm glad to hear that. Unsurprised, but also glad. So we like to talk about mistakes on this podcast because everyone makes them, and yet we somehow never seem to talk about them or we don't present it as such. So I'm hoping that you could tell me about a mistake or misstep that you've made in your own career and what you've learned from it. Yeah. When I think through my career, 
the biggest thing that I did not understand, I didn't understand the value of relationships and sort of continuing and really building and giving time and attention and thought to relationships. And it's very interesting because I'm, I'm usually the person who is here to like readily nurture someone else, you know, and, and, and be helpful as I can to anything that, that I can sort of apply my experience and background to, to help someone through. But in my, in my young, hot headed days, I was kind of like, like Angela Bassett and waiting to exhale when she like, you know, the car is like in flames behind her and she like, you know, flicks a match and she's out, you know, and she's just like walking and the wind is blowing through her hair and like the yes. nightgown is blowing in the wind. And I was just, I, I was that. I was that sort of person and I, and I didn't quite understand, yeah, how to nurture those, especially professional relationships. You know, I come from a working class background and those type of backgrounds, especially from my, you know, Caribbean immigrant folks, they were not like connected backgrounds. They were not backgrounds where you sort of like figure out how to nurture relationships and, and build a network. And especially when it comes to like raising capital for the business, that has been absolutely essential. So I wish I'd, I'd known how to do that uh, and, and known the value of that a little bit early on. So a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are in their first life or in the first part of their career, and they're interested in switching lanes or doing something different. As someone who has pivoted her career successfully a number of times, what advice would you give someone who wants to make that leap but isn't quite ready or is holding back in some way? Yeah, I would say... Looking back, I thought that every single thing I was doing was it, like it. I was just like, oh, you know, I am here for good. Like I couldn't see, I couldn't see further than that. And if I had given myself the grace of understanding that careers change and life changes and everything is constantly in flux, I think I would have slept better <laughs> and I think I would have been a lot yeah. less stressed out and I think I would have enjoyed the ride a lot more. I can look back on it now and I'm like, oh my goodness, every single solitary thing that I learned, even the things that I thought I, I wasn't learning anything has led to where I am now. What an incredible ride this has been. But I was really holding on tightly to the reins sometimes. And I, I would love to have known early enough to let go and to let things fluctuate and that it would be okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why we have this podcast. So hopefully other people will learn from that as well. And I agree with you. It's hard to have sort of a 30,000 feet perspective on your own career when you're in the middle of it or when you're doing it for the first time. I think that's so natural to not be able to mm -hmm. see the forest for the trees, especially in those early days. But when you can take a moment and look back and see how everything builds and leads to the next thing, there is that moment where you're like, wow, if I had just known yeah, this earlier, yeah. I would have slept better. <laughs> yeah. You'll look back on it and you'll realize that nothing is a waste of time. Absolutely. Okay. So my last question is my favorite question, which is if you could go back in time and speak with younger Karen, Karen at any point in her life or career and give her some advice, what would you say? I think I would have wanted at that time to have the courage to know that I was going to sort of set the pace for my life from a certain point onwards. Um, and, I, and I think that would have been like 
for me from 16 onwards, from the moment I decided what I was going to do in school. You know, I, I wish that I had had the courage to like really stand up and say, no, I don't, I don't want to do this. You know, that's your dream. It's not mine. I think I'll do something else. Yeah. Karen, I love that. That was so wonderful. Thank you so, so, so much. That was the founder and CEO of We The People, Karen Young. For more inspiring interviews with women like Karen, head on over to secondlifepod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you liked today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us. We love seeing you spread the word on social. And now you can tag us in your posts. We are at Second Life Pod on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So come say hi. We always want to know who you'd like to hear from on the show. So send in your request to hello at secondlifepod.com or you can just DM us on Instagram. I'm at Hillary Kerr. The show is at Second Life Pod. Our DMs are always open. I'm Hillary Kerr and you've been listening to Second Life.